So over the past few weeks, we have been studying the book of 1 Timothy initially, um, and even still, it seems as though this book has practical implications for us as a church. We are a young church plant that's been going for about 18 months. We're still trying to find our way. Some people believe that this book was written in order to establish church order or to set up guidelines for proper church practices. In the next few weeks, we'll be looking at things like eldership and deacons and the qualifications of those uh, specific offices. We'll be looking at prayer tonight. We'll be looking at um, the role of women in ministry next week. There's lots of information in this book that seems to have something to do with us as a local church, but also has to do with us as the capital C church um, even, even now. Understand, though, that from this limited information that we have in the New Testament that's kind of given to us to help guide us as churches, people have taken this information and gone in all sorts of different directions. The Episcopalians believe that the texts are leading them to practice church in this way, whereas the Methodists practice church in this way, whereas the Baptists practice church in this way. There's all different opinions on these matters. I don't really want to get bogged down in those issues, but I guess, I mean, if we're being honest, we all come to the text with certain uh, predispositions and we'll all see those things uh, within the text. That's why we continually ask the Spirit to guide us and and hopefully uh, that will happen. So over the past few weeks, we've been introducing this book and we've finished the first chapter. Uh, In this first chapter, we've met the two main characters, if you will, of this book, one being the author, Paul, and one being the recipient, Timothy. From the very outset, there's this bonded relationship between these two. Paul describes Timothy as my genuine son in the faith. There's this relationship where Paul is trusting Timothy with a task to go do the work that Paul cannot do simply because Paul cannot be in two places at once. Very early on in the, in the letter as well, we see the purpose for which Timothy is entrusted with this task. It says in, in verse 3, As I urged you when leaving for Macedonia, Timothy, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So we have this, I guess, third character, if you will, although we don't know a lot about this group of people. It's the intellectual elite that is rising up from within a congregation and trying to coerce or co-opt the gospel to take it in a direction where Paul is not wanting it to go. These folks are wanting to be teachers of the law or Torah teachers, and it seems like they're taking Old Testament law and um, traditions of Judaism and trying to impose them on people in improper ways, uh, for perhaps for improper um, benefits or advances. It says here, these things that they're leading people into, those different doctrines and the myths and the endless genealogies, those speculations, they're promoting useless speculations rather than faithfulness to God's way of ordering the world. For Paul, this is what it's all about. Timothy is entrusted with the task of going and fighting amongst this people group to show them once and for all, or at least once and again, um, what faithfulness to God's way of ordering the world looks like. Not what the teachers of Torah had been doing and like leading them in a way that, that manipulates the gospel for personal gain perhaps, but here we see uh, Timothy entrusted with this task. Some people would then think that what happens next in the book as Paul gets into church practices and um, 
the order of how church government works, that that seems to be the important part uh, of, of what's happening here. Some other folks would see this unnamed intellectual group that's leading people away. Paul is trying to deal with them, and he begins to, to deal with them very specifically even in chapter 2. Tonight we're going to be looking about prayer and how Paul is focusing this introductory conversation about what church should look like through the lens of prayer, okay? We've got a good-sized crowd tonight. Um, I'm going to ask you for some participation at some points, okay? So just be on your toes. I'm going to read through this passage, and then I'm going to ask you a question. This is the text we're looking at tonight. First of all, therefore, I urge that requests, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That first um, phrase there where Paul is saying, therefore, some folks are again saying this chapter, even though there's a lot of verses in between verse uh, 3 and here in chapter 2, they're linked together. So as Timothy is entrusted to these folks to try to, to correct bad teaching, this is related to the prayers that Timothy is going to be offering for these folks. First of all, therefore, I urge you that requests, um, petitions, prayers, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Pray for kings and everyone who is in authority so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life in complete godliness and dignity. This is right, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a payment to set all people free. This was a testimony that was given at the right time. I was appointed to be a preacher and apostle of this testimony. I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. I am a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There's a lot of key phrases and key adjectives in these first few verses that are framing where Paul is heading. Um, but before we go there, I just want to talk about prayer in general. Tell me something about it. Tell me anything about it. Prayer is talking to God, conversation. What else? Say it again. Powerful. Listening, yes, Noel's starting to get into territory where we might not live, but hopefully we can do some of that. What else? Time consuming? If done right, maybe yes. Some of us are like, well, not really. I mean, it's just kind of whatever. Bless the food, amen. It's not too time consuming. What else? Say it again. Vital, yes. I love that. Yeah. I like that. Why do you think it's hard, though? I'm going to push you a little bit. Okay. What else? Yes. Now we're, now we're getting even more knee-deep into the honesty realm where the Christian cliche is God always answers prayers. Sometimes he says, yes. Sometimes he says, and sometimes he says, wait, or maybe, or whatever. And a lot of times it seems like God is answering us by saying, wait, because like Ian, we don't see the things that we're wanting to see. Who are we praying for, or what are we praying about? What'd you say? Okay, yeah. 
yourself or at least the things that are related to you, usually your friends, your family, your job, those sorts of things. What else? Justice. Hopefully, Jesus would like that. What else? Ideally, yeah, for God's will to be done. We even see that modeled for us in, in the Lord's Prayer. What else? Yes? Food. Um, you get the, I don't know what people get, the Big Mac meal from McDonald's. Well, I know what I get from McDonald's. I get the filet fish combo meal. Hopefully you get enough tartar sauce. It drips out the side. You can dip your fries in the tartar sauce. Okay? I apologize, but that's just the type of person I am. And you're sitting there. A lot of times, I'll just be honest with you. I don't know. There's two schools of thought on pastors being honest. One is we don't want the pastor to be honest because we don't really want to know you as a person. We want to know the facade of you. I'm going to break that down right now. Okay? I told you that I'm a teacher. I told you that... um, at times, my life is stressful um, between doing schoolwork and teaching full-time and doing church and trying to father a little six-month-old Abram and not having any idea what's going on, trying to be a good husband. All those things have led me at times to take my sweet base model Honda Fit, drive it to the McDonald's on Tillman Road, end up in the parking lot with my filet fish value meal on my lunch break, and eat it. And every time I drive away, feeling guilt and shame <laughs> and indigestion. All of, all of those things. But you're sitting there looking at your filet of fish and you say, dear God, please let this chemically created fake fish bring nutrients to my body. I think Tim Hawkins does a bit where he says, please create a different molecular structure to what this sandwich is so that it brings nourishment and health to my body, like those sorts of things. So sometimes, yes, we pray for our food, and sometimes, yes, we pray for miracles to happen so that the food, the gross food that we eat becomes miraculously healthy. What else? Yeah, we pray to confess things, absolutely. Healing. Get back to the who we pray for. Who are the people in your life that you pray for? Family? Yeah? People with needs? Yeah? Good. Do some of you, last question, do some of you... Actually, I'll just open it up. How, how, what does prayer look like for you? Does it look like you go into your inner sanctum, which I guess would be the living room or the office or somewhere, the closet, and you like start praying, or do you pray as you go about your day? What does it look like? What do your prayer practices look like? Okay, yeah, while you're driving. Do you say it out loud or do you say it in your head? Okay. Do you feel kind of strange sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> He's on his cell phone. <laughs> Other prayer practices? I'll write them out because sometimes I just get distracted. I like that. Yeah. Writing them out. I've thought about starting some kind of file. Listen to the, the code words there. I've thought about starting uh, a file on my computer where I just type out prayers because for me, I've, I've had a hard time like finding that groove of what, what prayer for me looks like. It usually, if we're being honest, it looks like 
um, trying to enact what Paul says, pray without ceasing. Yes, I know that Jesus didn't just go about his daily routines. Yes, I know that Jesus removed himself and went and spent good quality time with his, with his dad. Um, but for me, it's kind of been more of a, whenever the thought comes to my mind, it immediately gets cast up in prayer. Um, I think that that should be a both and instead of an either or, but if, if I'm being honest with you, it seems that it, it probably is usually more of an either or than it is a both and. We have different approaches to prayer. Uh, I think a lot of us would agree with Laura in the sense that prayer can be hard or taxing or difficult or we might feel foolish or we might feel like Ian said that we're throwing things up there and we just begin to wonder, does he even hear? Does he even care? Is he even going to answer? Or sometimes we have those instances where a prayer gets answered and then we even begin to doubt that and say well I guess it could have been coincidence did God intervene in my life and the lives of those people that I love or is this just something that happens and we begin to ask those questions Um, Paul addresses some of this stuff right off the bat he says first of all therefore again that therefore is trying to link it back this this section of the Bible back to chapter one where he says um, you stay in Ephesus, as I'm going to do my thing, you, you stay there and try to meet these people's needs, uh, try to correct the bad teaching. In order to correct the bad teaching, Timothy, this is what you do first of all. It doesn't mean the first thing that you do, as if you wake up at 5 a.m. and you begin with that, that 5 a.m. prayer. This is more, yeah, the sense behind it is the thing that's of primary importance for you, Timothy, in how you're going to confront this teaching and this people, how you're going to right the wrongs that are happening within the congregation, Timothy, it's going to be something where you have to bathe it in consistent and sustained prayer. I urge that requests, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Can someone identify the difference between a prayer and a request to me? Okay, that one's a little bit hard. What about a a prayer and a a petition? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm trying to get you to say like, they all sound kind of similar to me. And I think that's Paul's point here. Yes, you can split hairs and say there is a difference between the prayer and the petition. There's definitely a a different flavor to the thanksgiving, um, but what is the difference between a request and a prayer and a petition? It might be the forcefulness in which you raise it, but Paul's point is you're raising prayers of various kinds, whatever it looks like, that's what you're doing. You're praying for who? For all people, even difficult people. There are some individuals in your life that you do not like. Is that fair to say? There are some people in your lives, probably, if you're being honest, that when you sit down to pray, whether it's writing or you're in your inner sanctum or whether you're in your car, they don't come to your mind, or if they do, you remove them because they've hurt you, because they've burned you, because they don't seem to care about you, because you can't forgive them, because of, for whatever reason, there's something that's built up between you and this person. Some of us are so far gone that we can't even identify who those people are because they have just been pushed to the back recesses of our mind. Am I speaking anyone's language right now? 
Certainly, even as a pastor, there's people in my life that I just struggle to get along with and that I struggle to pray for. Usually because it seems as though they've, hurt might not be the right word, but it's been so difficult in the past that you just moved on and you've surrounded yourself with the people who are, quote, life-giving as opposed to the people who just take from you. So when you sit down to pray, those are the people that you want to pour over. And think about Timothy's context here. There's an intellectual elite that's rising up, that's trying to take over, that's trying to take the gospel and manipulate it, lord it over people, force them into this ritualistic law-keeping uh, that's, that's very far gone from what Paul and what Jesus seemingly would, would want. And it might be very easy for Timothy to separate and begin to pray for the strength of the people that aren't far gone yet. In that situation, it might be easy for Timothy to say, now these people that haven't been affected by this bad teaching, I'm just going to pour into them. I'm going to try to give them myself. But these people over here that are too far gone, well, I'm just going to let them be, and I'm just going to focus right here. And at times, that seems to be how we do relationships too. But I think there's an important piece here where you're making all sorts of different kinds of prayers for all sorts of different kinds of people. Please also do not fall into this beautiful trap that we all do. When those people that you've pushed off, that you um, haven't forgiven, that have ostracized you or hurt you, when they do come to mind and you pray for them, the prayer is usually one of supreme and utter piety. Lord, please help our foregone brothers who have hurt us, who are so in the grip of Satan that we, like, they, they become, like, way over there and we, like, sort of exalt ourselves to be like, that's not us, that's them, and they have to deal with their own stuff and the way that we pray for them kind of mirrors that. Remember, though, when Paul talks in this letter and in many of his other letters, he is the chief of sinners. He kind of squashes this idea of we are better than so that when you pray, you don't pepper in the I'm better than this person sort of language as you're bringing them into the throne of grace, as my pastor growing up used to say all the time. It's dangerous and we start, especially when you get hurt, you start to remove yourself from those people, but also to elevate and say, I'm not as bad or I'm not as wrong or I'm not as whatever as these people. And we begin to elevate and we leave them down here. So when we pray for them, you can see that. A lot of what Paul's doing is saying, hey, Timothy, newsflash, I am the chiefest of sinners. These people aren't completely gone yet. Don't give up on them. Even last week when we were looking at those two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who they had cast out into uh, the grip of Satan or into the hands of Satan. They did that so that those people could be redeemed. They were not even that far gone. It was their last resort, but it was still done in the hope of redemption and reconciliation. And I think there's an underlying thought of, are there people in our minds that we do not even allow the potential for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration? Are there people that have hurt you so bad that you want nothing to do with them at all ever again? 
it seems like Paul is trying to poke holes in that um, for the sake of the community and also for the sake of the gospel. So think about those people in your life and how we model or don't model prayer for them. So I urge that requests, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made for all of these different kinds of people. Pray for kings. Okay, it's going to get bad. Laura, I don't know if you and I are, I hope we'll be friends after this, but just stay with me. I say that because Laura loves politics. We're going we're gonna to ease our way into that discussion in a moment. Okay, so just be okay with that. Pray for kings and everyone who is in authority so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life in complete godliness and dignity. Paul is saying, you pray for all these people, the people within your midst, the people maybe that you don't like, the people that have hurt you, the people that have burned you, the people that are, just seem so far gone. You pray for the people that you've handed over to Satan. You pray for folks' redemption and reconciliation and restoration. You also pray for kings and you pray for the people who are in institutional authority. For us, it's not kings necessarily, it's president, singular. And I know that as we begin to open up that beautiful door, opinions on the matter will go one way or the other way, or I guess there is that third way. But it seems that, that this is one of those very polarizing um, topics that people camp out on. Case in point, Facebook, Twitter. When any sort of ruling or law or this or that, you see half of the, the friend feed. I don't know what your friend feed looks like, but it's like half of the, the feed saying, the world's going to hell and this person is taking us there. This legislator is leading the way for us to go right into the pit of Satan himself by this one piece of legislation. And then we have other people who are like rejoicing and saying, this is the greatest day of all time. Even a couple weeks ago, um, there was, a, there was a vote within the Presbyterian Church, the United States of America, and it, it, it's a polarizing vote. And some people are like, this is great, let's celebrate this. And other people are like, this is terrible, we're all going to burn. Like that kind of thing. And it seems as though, I don't know if we are the type of people that, can, that, that use our Facebook or our Twitter as the forum for the world to be educated by all of our brilliant political <laughs> insights. I don't know if that's what it is, but sometimes the way that we talk about our president um, or even our, our state officials can be so, so, let's just say, removed from prayer or a prayer-like mindset. I was watching Mad Men a few months ago. I forget what season this was. I don't recommend this show to you. I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, they kind of interlace historical moments within the setting of, of an ad agency in the 60s. Um, in this particular episode, it was one where JFK was assassinated. And the way that the people of this time period, some of you remember where you were as this was happening. Um, it wasn't people going to Facebook and rejoicing. It was a nation seemingly, regardless of political ideologies, mourning the death of their leader. So much so that it seemed as though things kind of came to a halt for a, a brief period of time where, where people began to just want to, to be with each other and, 
to figure out what was going on in the world. Republicans, Democrats, independents, who knows, like all these people together just seem to, to not know what to do with that. And it, it got me thinking as I was watching the show um, what that would look like today. What that would have looked like eight years ago uh, with Bush in office and what that would have looked like now with Obama in office. Like, and the different, the, the polarizing views, I don't think that the nation would slow to a grinding halt and people would begin to mourn. I believe that half of the country would celebrate and half of the country would be incensed in anger at the other people that were celebrating. It seems as though the way that we think about institutional authority is not the way that the Bible commends us to think about institutional authority. Um, this verse is, is familiar, but Romans 13, which still I believe has bearing for us as, as a people, uh, says every person should place themselves under the authority of the government. For us, that's kind of easy uh, because the legislation that is, that is made isn't forcing us to do things that are completely heinous. Um, for other folks in other parts of the world, that might be more of, of a difficult idea, but here it says there isn't any authority unless it comes from God and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God himself. And it seems as though the way that we talk and the way that we go about thinking about our American government, we remove this and we remove Timothy and this idea of praying for the folks above us. And I think we've kind of missed it. We need to, in a sense, expand our view beyond these polarizing views here. On the one hand, yes, Jesus was a, a, a white American for a lot of people who loves Republican politics versus other folks that would say um, Jesus is a Democrat. It's interesting to me the places that you go and... Uh, the issues that come about based on what bumper sticker you have on your car. And you know that if you have one that's promoting this party to go in a certain parking lot might be a risky, <laughs> risky maneuver. But we need to expand our view beyond this idea of Jesus as um, Republican or Democrat, especially as we think about kings and world leaders, because it's not just an American issue especially when we think about this as well, um, you might not like some of the legislation that's happening right now, but we don't live in some of these tyrannical, um, dictator sort of focused governments around the world. At times, the church is so focused on American politics that we miss. We shouldn't just be praying for Obama or whoever's in office at the state level. We should also be praying for these world powers that are oppressing people to degrees that we have no conception, to degrees where people die because of their faith, to degrees where the gospel is not just a, a formality or a, a thing that you can add to your life. It's, it's, it's life or it's death in a lot of these places. We read the Bible a lot of times, I would say most of the times, as Americans or Canadians. 
we read the Bible as Westerners not seeing the bigger picture and what's, what's going on here. We also read the Bible not seeing and understanding what Paul's talking about in his context. Praying for kings or authorities was important because they wanted to be able to live a quiet and peaceful life in complete godliness and dignity. Their life was at stake with who's in, in power, who's in charge of, of the Roman government, if you will, because it was very close to um, persecution. They lived in a time where these things mattered to them on a practical level more than they might matter to us. This idea, though, of them living a quiet and peaceful life doesn't mean that they just want to enact the American dream and live on a ranch somewhere in a house that's fully paid off and they can just not see neighbors for days and just sit back and milk cows and eat beef. That's the American dream, isn't it? For some of you, makes close, okay. It was, it was more, um, they wanted to be able to be ambassadors for the gospel wherever they were, maybe without losing their life. They also wanted to have complete godliness and dignity, which seems to be something that is shown on the outside. It's not just um, the ability for them to be without persecution and without suffering. It was the ability for them to be ambassadors and agents for Christ in the midst of a world that needed hope. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, it says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. I love thinking about this and then wondering if Paul or whoever was writing a letter to characterize the American church, if we would be able to be described in this way. Probably not. Um, Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This idea of leading a quiet life was one that people could see. It wasn't just going to the ranch and milking cows and eating beef. It was being a peaceful person in the midst of turmoil so that people could say the gospel has created or transformed this individual and it seems to be working itself out in a way that's different. So what Paul is saying here in these first few verses of chapter two, pray for everyone, even the people that you don't like, even the people that have hurt you, even the people that you can't forgive. Also pray for governments and powers. Yes, American governments and powers, but also expand your mind to include people that are oppressing peoples. And you do all of this so that they can see the gospel in you and around them. This is right and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't want to get sidetracked here on what this means because there are in-house theological debates on what this means. For some people, it's not God wanting all people to be saved. It's God wanting the elect to be saved. Other people will say, no, see right here, it says all people. So I don't want to get sidetracked by that. I think the point sort of transcends that discussion Okay. Um, pray for all people because God wants all people. Again, you're not writing them off. You haven't taken them out of the running. They haven't uh, been written off. 
regardless of how, how bad or how oppressive they may or may not be. All this idea about praying for everyone is fueled by this idea, this beautiful theological idea that God wants all of these people to know and love him. And we can't even bring ourselves to pray for the people in our lives because they have hurt us, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways, but we write them off and we deem that God must not love them because I'm up here and they're down there, I'm good and they're terrible. Paul's taking that idea and completely obliterating it by saying, you have no grounds. God wants these people, so get your mind right. Learn how to pray for them in all sorts of formats, prayers, petitions, requests, thanksgivings, all these different things as you're praying for these people so that they can see the gospel at work in you, so that they can experience the gospel in their own lives, so that they can enter into this faith-based relationship with Jesus. Uh, Gordon Fee says, the point of this text is clear. The gospel by its very nature, as Paul will argue in verses five and six, which we're getting ready to come to, is universal in its scope and any narrowing of that scope by a truncated theology, a small theology, a limiting theology, or by the novelties that appeal to the intellectual curiosities of the few is not the gospel of Christ. The gospel that we preach is one without limitations, without uh, exclusivity. The gospel is one that we preach where Christ died for whoever will accept him. We aren't immune from this idea because we do at times have truncated theologies, even though those words seem a little bit too bold or too uh, intellectual for us. We, we write people off. Dad, mom, ex-husband, ex-wife, ex-this, ex-that, boss, person over there, roommate, professor, person you sit next to that you don't like. Like all these, like we, we limit the gospel and the applicability of the gospel to those individuals. I think part of that's tied to prayer too because A, we've stopped praying for it and B, we've stopped expecting to see it happen. So here, this is right. It pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Last point, and this is beautiful. There is one God. Here, Paul is kind of tapping into these ideals that were so prevalent. The Shema, say Shema. Shema, come from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. Shema is a Hebrew verb meaning hear. It's a command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This idea of one God was revolutionary throughout um, their context. There's one God and also the implications, political implications of that. Yeah, you can pray for your kings. You can pray for your presidents. You can pray for your state legislators. But there's one God who's above all of that. You keep that in mind and your prayers are subversive in the sense of when you say, Jesus, help fill in the blank, because you're saying this person is not the end of the road. Jesus is the end of the road. There's a, a subversive quality to that, which I kind of like. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and humanity, the human or the man or the person, Christ Jesus, the guy who is God yet met us in the midst of this mess to become what we could not be. 
this human Christ Jesus also gave himself as a payment to set all people free. In the Roman context, this would have been huge because there was indentured servitude all over the place. There was slavery all over the place, which they would have heard this language as a setting free from. Not just how we usually see this as a legal transaction where we have a debt and Jesus steps in and pays for it. Okay, but it's also this this removal from oppression. Think Exodus more so than think law court. It's a people who are under an oppressor being led out by a deliverer. And Jesus is that deliverer, which leads us to see this in all of its beauty. This text about prayer and about people is centered around the transformation of the gospel. Something that we say here all the time. We believe that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring humanity, relationships, and all of creation to what they were intended to be. As the American church, we have reduced salvation to every head bowed and every eye closed. Do you want to accept Jesus? Raise your hand. I do. And it becomes this individual moment between you and Jesus. There is a bit of that, but the cosmic scope of what Christ did on the cross and through the empty tomb transcends me or you, and it becomes everything. Reconciliation for the world, for all of creation, for every bit of it, Jesus is over top of it and bringing it back to what it is supposed to be. This program of of restoration that's initiated in Jesus' coming and his death and his resurrection is not just about me or it's about you. We are but small players in this role of complete and utter transformation and we're privileged to play a part in it. When we reduce it to every head bowed and every eye closed, we miss a lot of the beauty in who Jesus is and what he came to do. When we reduce it to this individuality, we fail to see the scope of the Bible where Jesus is bringing all things, reconciling all things to his dad. What Paul's going after here is not just this this moment where people can become saved. He's going after a moment where people begin to understand the scope of what Jesus has done and how it has transformed everything. Do not fail to see that even now. Do not fail to pray big prayers because he is Lord over everything. Do not fail to see the significance of the gospel, not just for me or not just for you, but for everyone I think when we see that, we'll, we'll maybe write people off a little bit less as we see the scope of, of who Jesus is. In conclusion, there's a few things that we can get from this, this text. We pray for people, and we pray for people based on our understanding of the gospel, an understanding that Jesus became what we could not be, offered himself in a way that we could not offer ourselves completed the task that we could not complete. And in that, he has transformed everything, bringing about new creation and allowing us to be a part of that. And then giving us the job of going out and demonstrating that to people in our actions and in our words and in our deeds.
I hope that we begin in some small way to pray those sorts of prayers for our president, for our state legislators, for our friends, for our family, for the people that have hurt us. And as we think about this even now, ask yourselves the difficult questions of who are the people that I have written off and how have I limited the power of the gospel in my own life?